But no, once again, a big thank you uh, for coming out. Oh, there was an Easter egg on top of the television. Nice. That's where they got to. Once again, a big thank you for coming out this Sunday as I throw everything around everywhere. Uh, we're super excited uh, to have you here. And I know for a lot of you, uh, for a lot of you, Easter is still probably fresh uh, in your minds. And more so the holidays or the school holidays, if you're able to have them, is still pretty fresh in your minds. Uh, but at the same time, this time of celebration, the, the chocolate comas, uh, waiting for little cousins or your own kids to come down from the sugar high, still recovering from Easter camping and all the Easter laundry from not anticipating classic camping rain, uh, the family gatherings, the time spent away from home and, and being able to enjoy a day off on work uh, of, on Monday. So uh, if you're joining us today after popping out to the Easter event last Sunday, uh, a big welcome to you and uh, we just want to let you know we, our Beyond our family, had an awesome time celebrating with you and the local community as well. And if you couldn't make it, we hope it was well celebrated. Uh, it was a well celebrated Sunday for you uh, too. Uh, because ultimately, outside of the holidays, outside of the, the sugar highs and, and stocking up for the winter on hot cross buns, because oh, inevitably the Christmas festivities are probably bound to start popping up in Coles and Woolworths in the next fortnight or so, Easter really is. Easter really is a time of celebrating uh, and remembering that the face of God, the Son of Man, writing himself into history to rewrite history and provide a brand new beginning to your life. Uh, but at the same time, maybe in your experience with Christianity or maybe more so in your experience with Christians, uh, you push back against that whole idea already, uh, this idea that God actually did write himself into history. And I, I can understand that to some degree, uh, and I can understand more so that you might have felt burnt by Christians before uh, in your past too. But if you're someone who's ever questioned the existence of God, if you're someone who's ever questioned the reality of what this Jesus guy actually did and why he did it, if you've ever questioned what it would be like to actually meet with Jesus face-to-face, to be face-to-face with Jesus, with God in human form. I mean, it sounds unreal. What sort of things would he talk about? How do you imagine you'd feel after meeting him? If you've had these questions about Jesus before, uh, then this next series or these next couple of Sundays, these ideas that we're going to unpack really is for you. If you've ever questioned the whole idea of being on a faith journey, if you've ever questioned or been frustrated by how some Christians go about behaving, if you've had a burn experience with the church before, these next four Sundays, like I said, are for you. Because over the next four Sundays, we're going to be looking at a conversation that Jesus actually had on the side of a mountain. It's a conversation documented by a guy called Matthew, this Jewish tax collector who sat there and recorded the words of Jesus as part of his biography, as part of the biography of Jesus' life. And this conversation that took place was really all about a new approach to living uh, as believers, uh, to live as believers of God uh, within the world. And at not even in this time in history, but for us today, Jesus' message that Matthew doc- documents is relevant. And it took place almost over 2,000 years ago when Jesus delivered it. Uh, but it was a conversation and its learnings relevant for us today. But ultimately, it was a true upside-down approach as to how we as everyday people can go about doing life. But hey, hey, maybe for some of you, you might uh, feel you're already, already on top of all this follower of Jesus stuff and all the teachings and the learnings, and you feel pretty savvy with your Bible and all the rest. Uh, maybe uh, for some of you, you just consider the whole Jesus teaching stuff kind of irrelevant, and that's fine too. Uh, But this morning and over the next few Sundays, what we'll be looking at is more than just what Jesus taught as this guru figure. More than just this Jesus guy as a guru figure. But this is Jesus extending to us today a brand new way of living and a brand new starting point for life change. 
Uh, in the midst of all this, I realise I haven't introduced myself. My name's Riley. Um, I often just rock up here uh, of a Sunday in the AIM service and the PM service as well. And um, Oh, I've got to do one thing. I've got to do one thing first. I have to introduce you uh, to my sisters as well. Um, granted, this isn't me now. This is me a long time ago. Uh, but to get, introduce myself a little bit more, um, here's a photo of me uh, and my siblings, my family. This is my younger sister and my older sister. Uh, I'm the one not in the Princess Tutu outfit, just to give you a heads up there. Uh, but I have a twofold reason for really showing you this photo this morning. And one, one is because I want to talk to you about the adversity I faced in growing up with an older sister and a younger sister. Uh, and two, because statistics show that if I show you a photo of my family, you're more likely to listen to me. So, um, here we go, back to reason one. Uh, because in this photo, in this photo, it all looks like we love each other, which I do. I, I love my younger sister, Rihanna, and I love my older sister, Casey. And I'm very lucky to have two sisters, very blessed uh, and particularly very blessed to have uh, one, my younger one, that has an inside voice, and my older one that has a very loud outside voice that likes using it inside. So in light of my uh, relationship with my sisters, probably at this age in my life, uh, and I don't know if you've had this experience before or what your own unique experience looks like, if you've had siblings, an older brother, younger brother, younger sister, older sister, vice versa, um, or even cousins and all the rest, what it was like for you as a child, just having sibling feuds or just childhood feuds back and forth or with family. Uh, because for me, for me in my life, I'd, I uh, found myself, particularly at this age, apologizing a lot uh, to both my sisters. Uh, and more so to Casey. See, there was an incident with Casey where Casey used to love this show called Saddle Club uh, that was all about horse riding. And, and Casey loved Saddle Club. So I thought I, uh, at the age of, of eight, I'd, I'd pounce on this opportunity and make the most out of the fact that Casey loves Saddle Club. Uh, by allowing Casey to be the horse out of Saddle Club. And I would often jump on Casey's back uh, and Casey would prance around and pretend she was Starlight of Saddle Club and, and I'd ride her and we'd go around the house and she'd go around. But of course, I, I'm an eight-year-old boy. I kind of want to go pretty fast. Um, so often I'd try and get Casey's attention to go faster just by yanking her hair a little bit. And this was all fun and games, obviously, until Casey would start to say, that hurts, Riley. That hurts, Riley. No, Riley, that hurts to the point where my grandma now keeps a lock of Casey's hair in a plastic uh, little laminated bag in her house because I ripped a chunk of her hair out of her head playing saddle club. And you'd realize in this moment the scream that would have came out of my older sister's mouth. But at the same time, uh, the stares and the glares and the voice of my parents as they walked into the room to see what had happened. It was one of those situations where I knew I would have had to apologize. At the same time, when it came to my younger sister, Rihanna, Rihanna wasn't too easy to annoy in any way. A lot of my apologies towards Rihanna was for wearing my Batman mask or getting dressed up as Spider-Man because Rihanna hated characters. Uh, in fact, one year I was a part of a Christmas carols and I had to dress up as a clown. This is when I was 10 and walk around handing out lollipops and all the rest of the people. And I went up to my sister knowing that it would scare her and Rihanna flipped out so much. She said, oh no, characters. And she ran away from me. She couldn't believe it was her brother. Uh, but that was my way of kind of annoying and stressing and freaking out my younger sister. Uh, Rihanna kept all her hair, however. Uh, Casey was less lucky. Uh, but that was the thing. For me, I knew in both of those moments, when I scared my sister or when I annoyed them, when I did anything uh, that would tip them off the edge slightly, that an apology was going to be lined up in some way. Uh, but at the same time, I know there's times in my life where I've had to be... Uh, where I have been apologized to as well. And, and like I said, I don't know if you have any crazy cousins uh, for you across your childhood experience where you had feuds back and forth with them. But I, um, when I was younger, 
you know, yeah, well, this incident happened when I was, I was younger. I have um, some crazy cousins that are pretty much, they are like little ninjas. Um, sh- I'm like thinking surely they're trained in jiu-jitsu in some way. Because uh, my younger cousin, Ella, at one time, when I had to be apologized to, uh, we'll play fighting and all the rest, which is all fun and games. Uh, but Ella has this roundhouse kick that's just as good as Chuck Norris's. And Ella one day managed to give me a black eye where I literally could taste my eyeball going into my head and coming back out. I caught this black eye at the age of 14 and I had to message my coach and then call him up to explain why I wouldn't be at soccer training that night, which he then went on to tell the rest of the team because Riley had been kicked in the eye by his eight-year-old little cousin. Uh, But in all these incidents, in light of all the apologies and all the rest, and every time, the response would kind of look the same. You see, for my sisters... Uh, how they'd go about uh, responding would look a little bit different. And in fact, in my family, it was fairly standard in my house to write a handwritten apology, to write a handwritten apology and then put it underneath that person's door so they could read it in their own time. That was one way we went about apologising in our house. But the standard way I always saw apologies happen uh, outside of my house and in the circumstance of my little cousin too, it's burnt in my head, is when my auntie took my little cousin Ella by the hand and walked her over to me and said, Ella, what do you need to say? which was followed by the words, I'm sorry. And these two words are words that we've probably said a lot in our life. And maybe we've said it with good meaning, but sometimes we say it just for the sake of saying it. And I don't know if you've ever had a memory in your own head as a child or even as a parent today where you've walked your own child over to somebody else, a friend, uh, or even uh, to a stranger or to somebody else's kid to say these two words, I'm sorry. But the because they're not always the easiest two words to say. And, and frankly, sometimes we don't want to say it as kids. And sometimes we don't want to say it as adults. It's a lot easier to say, oh, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. Mom, I was just trying to play horses. She wasn't going fast enough and her hair just fell out. Now, whether we are to blame or not, as an adult, we don't get walked over by our parents. We don't get walked over by our partner. We don't get walked over by our friend or our spouse to apologize or to say the words, I'm sorry, to others. Or at least, I, I hope you don't. But I know that there is a very good chance that you've had to say sorry for things in your life that you didn't think were your fault. And there's a good chance we've all been on the receiving end of apologies that felt fake or forced. But you know, in either of these circumstances, the healing of wounds in any relationship will be absent if an apology feels fake or feels forced. Forced. And, And for some of you, the absence of an apology of never hearing the words, I'm sorry, from someone at work has forced you to not love work and really dislike that person. For some of you, never hearing I'm sorry has made you feel resentment towards someone who was a friend or who you thought was a friend. For some of you, the absence of an apology of never hearing the words I'm sorry in your family circle has left a gap between how you go about communicating, how you go about operating, um, how you go about love within your family. For some of you, never hearing someone admit the past mistakes they made time and time again or never owning up to that single mistake they made that affected you and loved ones has manifested confusion, division, and separation with people that were once or are meant to be loved ones. Whether you find it really easy to say sorry or really difficult to apologize, when it comes to the relationships that you really care about in your life, your relationships with your best friends, your parents, your siblings, your partner, your spouse, no one wants to be caught up in the ugly, hot mess of going back and forth over who was in the wrong, whose fault it was, who should be blamed, and not being able to have the healing of the wounds of someone of the wounds that someone has left in a relationship. No one wants to be caught up in that limbo spot of holding on to anger every time that they are with the other person because they still haven't heard the apology they were expecting. 
And no one wants to be caught up in the guilt and second-guessing what the other person is thinking about them because they haven't apologized. See, in all these cases, there's something that's missing when someone utters the words, I'm sorry. So this morning, what we're going to do, we're going to look at what actually goes missing so often when someone utters the words, I'm sorry, and what you can do about it. Like we said, we're going to do it through reading a historical account. This historical account that was written by this fellow Matthew, this Jewish tax collector who sat on this hill whilst Jesus is uh, talking to people on this mountain. And from what Matthew tells us, uh, this mountain where Jesus is, so you can kind of paint the picture here, uh, is near the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, uh, which you can find on a map, and it's a proper sea. So we can even pinpoint around the location Jesus actually delivered his message. Matthew even tells us what Jesus was doing before he arrived at this mountain with this crowd of people following him. You see, Jesus at this point in his life had the following of people around him uh, from Syria, from Judea, from Jerusalem and across Jordan. Why? Why were they following him? Because of the things that he was doing, what people had seen him do. And also his teachings uh, that God's people, these select people that, that thought they were just the only ones that could actually be believers of God, that God's people aren't just a select few, but everyone, everyone are a part of God's community that he loves everyone these are all the things uh, that you might find constantly annoying to hear from christians because christians aren't always good at doing them but but in jesus's messing message uh, these teachings that he's sharing at the time they were revolutionary rev- sorry revolutionary compared to that of what some thought a relationship with god actually looked like and what it meant and that was particularly in alignment to what people knew about the ten commandments as well so that gives you kind of a context as to what we're entering into here Because what Matthew documents and Jesus shares even showed Jewish people of the time in their own sacred law, their own teaching, and also non-Jewish people, how they fit together in God's unfolding plan for history. His big purpose to show people that God entering into history as man, as Jesus, would rewrite history. He gave a new meaning to how people of that time and how we today are to follow Jesus. So Jesus, with this mob of people from all across everywhere, lined up behind him, knowing that he has more to show and more to tell them, says, listen... I'm going to climb that mountain. And he does. He legs it up. He gets up there. And and we're going to tune in from here because Jesus has been talking for a while up until this point. And there's Matthew on his rock getting everything down. And Jesus is on the mountain. He's got the downwind. So his voice is echoing over this place like uh, in this big dome. And and where we're picking up from, uh, we're going to find out how we actually go about responding to this tension that we've been talking about uh, this morning. And this is the uh, bit in Jesus' message that we're going to be picking up from. He's speaking at the top of the mountain. This is what he says. Uh, to the people there. He says, You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the first hell. See, Jesus is talking to this large crowd of people. And, and First things first, you might uh, have heard what I said, the little bit of script that wasn't on the screen, uh, where Jesus actually talks about hell. And you might hear and think, Struth, Jesus is really going at them here, like he's starting off strong. But let's walk this through together by looking at uh, just some of the words that are highlighted first, because he talks about our ancestors. And Jesus, Jesus was Jewish himself. So when he says our ancestors, he's talking about the people of Israel who pop up in the Old Testament, that first part of the Bible. Uh, and God's, they were identified as God's chosen people who lived under the Ten Commandments. You see, Jesus flips this principle of what he's saying on his head when he says, but I say. This is when it gets countercultural, Because Jesus wasn't adding his own beliefs to what his Jewish audience already knew about the whole Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. He wasn't trying to add his own flavor and flair. 
Rather, he was trying to give fuller understanding of why God had called it law. And a lot of the Pharisees, these religious leaders of Jesus' time, followed this law by literally not murdering anyone, and they had believed that they had obeyed it fully by not murdering anyone. Yet these religious leaders were angry enough with Jesus that they would soon plot his death, even though they wouldn't do the upfront dirty work themselves. And the very way the Pharisees read God's word is the same way a lot of us Christians go about trying to live out God's rules for living without trying to understand why he actually made them in the first place. So when Jesus says, I say, Jesus' teachings that we should not even become angry enough to murder or even think or say it in our own head. Why? Because when we are driven by hatred and overwhelmed by frustration towards someone, when there is resentment and when we are furious at the scars some people leave in our lives, who we believe are hurting others, people we love or ourselves, we can line ourselves up to commit murder in our own heart. That's the teaching. If we become angry enough to wish someone didn't exist, if we become angry enough to murder, we've already committed murder in our own heart. And then, then Jesus paints this out clearer in the context for us even today. Jesus is saying in any fractured relationship, in any fractured relationship that you have in your own life where there is hurt or disconnect, choosing to have an attitude towards that person that will be divisive and will distance you from having meaningful relationship with them, i.e., as Jesus uses in his examples, calling them an idiot, being reactive for the sake of just being reactive, it will devalue and it will tear you away from having honest friendship and honest relationship. So how do we go about responding in times when there's disconnect in our relationships? Because we can receive an apology from someone, but if it feels fake, well, we still have to deal with our own feelings. We still have to deal with our own thinking and our own frustrations with that person. And at the same time, saying I'm sorry because we think it's what the person wants to hear, but it's not something we actually really mean, well, that can be just as, in, as unhelpful for us and just as unhelpful for them. And that's why Jesus gives us a way to go about responding. And he does it and talks about it in a way that's pretty unique to his audience too. He says this, So, so if you are presenting a sacrifice to the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. And you see, like we said, it was pretty specific to his audience how he was tailoring what he was saying. Because in Jewish Israelite practice, bringing a sacrifice to the altar of the temple was done out of obedience to God. So what Jesus is saying to his crowd is a completely opposite, upside-down approach. Jesus is stating, don't go about prioritizing these sacrifices of your finances, your times, your gifts, over relationships that you have with others. Yes, they're important, but to maintain, to maintain a healing relationship with God, we must also give thought to how we maintain our relationships with one another. This teaching that before you come and declare yourself a follower or obedient deliver, uh, believer, Check in with how you are connecting to those in your life. That reconciliation actually comes first. Reconciliation with others comes first. The Son of God literally saying to an audience, the offering that you've been told to bring forward to show your faithfulness to God, leave it at the altar and go out of the temple and prioritize the person you're in dispute with or have quarrels with before you offer what you have to God. And this is the whole love God and love your neighbor way of life. This is how it comes into play. Claiming to love God while we hate, while we grow in resentment and frustration with others is hypocritical. And for a lot of people who aren't followers of Jesus, well, these are the very experiences, these very experiences with hypocritical Christians can be a pushback to the whole concept of Christianity in the first place. For followers of Jesus, it's not just the obedience of being sacrificial and generosity 
in service to others, in service to community, in time in prayer or reading the Bible that will alone maintain our relationship with God. This is the principle, this is the teaching. Yes, they're important, but to maintain, to maintain a relationship, a healthy relationship and a healing relationship with God, we must also give thought to how we maintain our relationships with one another. Because praying to God to fix a person without looking into yourself is not the solution to reconciliation. We can experience hurt. We can experience pain from our colleagues, from our friends, from our children, from our spouses or our parents. And that can cause us to gossip and it can cause us to grow and gain in more distrust. It can cause us to start upfront arguments with them externally or even play out arguments with them in our own heads internally. In either experience, division cultivates and the hurt and the pain continues to manifest. Neither provides a place for reconciliation. What Jesus points to isn't just a simple matter of an apology. It's not just the words, I'm sorry. See, when it comes to healing in our relationships, when it comes to a genuine and sincere uh, reconciliation, the thing that is missing isn't the apology itself. It isn't the apology itself. It's, con- it's confessing through heart change. It's one thing to say you're sorry, but to repeat the same wrong again, to continue on with the same behavior, to decide to do the same wrongs, it will leave no room for trust. And it cripples honesty and and cripples meaningful connection with others. It's confession through heart change. And I get get that confession in itself is kind of a churchy word, but it's not meant to be a word that just holds some type of church lingo. Confession is something you do. It's not just... Confession Confession isn't something you just do or say as a statement because you're in trouble. Uh, Confession isn't meant to be a negative experience. And confession is not simply designed to get us to simply apologize, but to help us change our hearts. Confession is not simply designed to get us to simply apologize, but to help us change our hearts. And I don't know for me, uh, I know for me, and I don't know for you, but, but I feel like I don't confess well. You see, even as people, we say sorry, or that we were triggered, and, and we just move on from situations. We move on from from past conversations. Saying the words, but not changing our hearts, though. It, it never repairs our relationship. And confession, confession is meant to be a liberating experience. Confession really is accepting the reality of a situation. Confession gives space for you to connect the part that needs healing and changing with other people and resolve guilt and shame. It's not simply designed to get us to simply apologize, but to help us change our hearts. And that's it. Confession is a heart change, not simply a word exchange. Because someone can apologize, but if they keep repeating the behavior or start to turn it around and blame you for continuing the behavior, well, there's a problem. That person becomes an unsafe person. And people who apologize too quickly, on the other hand, or even over-apologize, that may act like they are sorry or as if they're interested in change, but they're really just leading someone on. They may say all the words and have all the words up their sleeves, and some are taken in by their tears and all the rest, but in reality, they are more sorry about getting caught out. You see, these people, they don't tend to change, and their future tends to stay the same as their past. And instead, so instead of becoming either or, or of these people, you have the opportunity to take the first step towards changing the game for yourself through not just talking words, but through heart change. And we do this thing just of a Sunday here at Beyond, where we'd love uh, to give you application to take into the rest of your week. In fact, we package it uh, as a thing called a Four Monday. And this week's for Monday, the application stepping out of this Sunday is this. It's to take the first steps in reconciling a relationship. 
to take the first steps in reconciling the relationship. For you, these first steps could look like a lot of things. It could look like being honest with someone, apologizing or talking about how you feel. It could look like a conversation. For maybe for some of you, it could look like being honest with yourself first. It might just be identifying the very things that you're feeling and thinking and having the self-awareness to do that, I understand, can, can actually help you remove emotional charge in your circumstance and give you a bigger picture view of how to actually go about responding to it. Asking yourself this question, are my feelings actually coming from a place of hurt, from my own wounds? Okay, well, if that's the case, then I know I don't need to react out of jealousy. I know I won't react out of spite, resentment, anger. Okay, if, if so, how can I actually respond in a way that will push towards healing, will push towards reconciliation over division? What would my words sound like? What would my actions look like? How do I go about responding with peace and love? Maybe for some of you this week, it could look like being honest with your Heavenly Father, actually confessing to Him the reality of what you're experiencing with that person. But the, uh, yes, but, but the reality of, of also what is happening within yourself and your own weaknesses that you need to develop upon. Because anyone can say the words, I'm sorry. But it takes courage to identify your wrongs and strength to change your behavior. Maybe you're having some pushback here. You're thinking, Riley, I've got relationships that simply can't be reconciled. They have to be left in the past. And I know I don't know the full of your story. And I know uh, that could be very tricky for you, some of these relationships as well. And I'm not completely speaking to that or having any control over that in any way. But I know for a fact that, that we as people, we simply can't control others. You can't force someone else to confess. But, but you can control how you respond through confession. As we land the plane uh, on this morning, for followers of Jesus, this is huge. This is a massive opportunity. This is the game changer. Confession is the game changer. Being willing to forgive and choose heart change over word exchange. This is how people have the opportunity to see the face of Jesus and experience what true, honest, meaningful relationship was intended to look like in the first place. Some people may only be one relationship away, one conversation away from a relationship with Jesus. See, for me, I know the easy way out is to shrug my shoulders and walk away and do nothing about my transgressions towards others. But a heartfelt confession has the power to heal and ultimately change lives when Jesus' followers confess. It gives the rest of the world an insight into the grace of God. People tend to associate apologizing with emotional vulnerability and emotional vulnerability with weakness. At the end of the day, every one of us is flawed. We all have made mistakes. We all make mistakes. This doesn't make us weak. It makes us human. Bringing our weaknesses and brokennesses, our flaws, mistakes, the guilt that tells us we fell short again, or the shame that tells us that we're not just simply not good enough, but we are not good enough, that we're hopeless. Bringing it all to God in confession is ultimately what changes our hearts. Because when we confess, when we confess, we come into a deeper understanding of the reality of who we are in relation to who we need to be. We might not always feel the strength to do that, that's okay because we never really had the strength in the first place. That's the whole reason God wrote himself in with nails in his hands. I heard a parent say uh, to me once that there is no love greater than when you see your own child enter into a room in their brokenness. Amongst the tears and their sadness, you just want to hug them and let them know they are loved and that you are there. This is a heavenly father who looks at his children in their mess of the state and says, I have never loved you more. In light of your past mistakes, current circumstances, the fears of the future, I've never loved you more. 
The arrival of God as man in the timeline of history brought a promise and hope that gave a new way of living with the creator of the universe who is completely for you. This is the creator of the universe who is relentlessly pushing towards you so you can know a peace and love, so you can know you are safe, that you are forgiven, and that he is proud of you. The kind of connection we truly need most is one where we are known from the depths of our being. And confession does this. Confession is accepting the reality, bringing it forward to others and to God. Agreeing with reality alongside of others and your heavenly father is one of the deepest processes of intimacy we can know with others. And to be fully known and fully loved is one of the greatest feelings one can feel. I'd love to pray uh, this morning and then I'll pass you back over to the band. But God, uh, we just give over to you any friendships, any relationships, anything happening within our own uh, family circles and in our life, God, where there are gaps in our connection with others. Lord, we pray over these gaps, but we also pray for courage uh, to actually be able to identify what we're feeling and what we're thinking in the midst of these relationships and how we're going about processing it. God, we pray for the courage to actually confront it and actually sort and uh, seek out a way to actually go about responding to it alongside of others so that they can be healing, Lord, that they can be reconciliation. But at the same time, God, we give the burdens, we give the fear and the anxiousness and in the midst of the loneliness and all the rest that comes in these times of trying to figure out how to go about approaching people and reconnecting with them. We pray for that reconciliation and we give the healing all over to you in your hands. We know we simply can't control others, but we can control our own way of going about responding to God in the midst of it all the joy that we are able to share in our relationships and also sometimes the burdens we have to carry too we give it to you and we thank you for your healing we pray these things in your name amen